Alright, we are in the, the midst of 1 Corinthians 7, and it is full of difficult passages, good and necessary passages, and I always want us to remember that when we are given instruction in marriage, as well as the morality that we've been looking at last several weeks, that it is never given in a light of, you can't do this, you can't do that, but it is always to be taken of that if we will follow the rules of our Creator and God, we it will be better. We live in a world of sin, though, and because of that, marriages don't always turn out the way we want them to be. Uh, but relationships are a struggle sometimes, and so we've got to be able to deal with that. And one of the the, the results of the fall is divorce. And that, but yet the Lord is very careful to explain to us the parameters of that and uh, gives us some insight here in, with Paul in chapter 7 that we need to take seriously if we want things to be done right. And we want, and we see what happens in a society where divorce is rampant and divorce for any reason, no fault, no fault divorce and all the things that we've got today. That it's not the way God wants it and that there's better ways to do things. And so we want to look at what the Bible says about these subjects so that we can go from there. But saying all that, it does not mean that all, there's easy answer to some of these things. Yes, the Bible is clear. But the Bible doesn't lay it out as clearly as perhaps we would like, and that forces us to study, and that's why the Bible sometimes does that. It forces us to look deeply at these, at these things, but it gives us, if we'll just stop and, and take our time in going through this, we begin to pick up principles to help us understand how to uh, deal with different situations. And so these are just some of the things that we are looking at. Last week we saw Paul is answering questions from the Corinthian church. Some are saying that because it is so easy to fall into sexual sins, it might be best to stay away from marriage entirely. And that's why when he, in verse 1 we read, It is better for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. That is not Paul saying that. Paul is going to answer that. And he's going to answer it with a resounding no. That marriage is a, and sex is a good gift of God, but there are parameters. There's right ways and wrong ways to go about it, and you cannot be neutral in that. God has given us clear uh, information here. And so we said here also the fall has made these matters more difficult, but marriage and intimacy are gifts from God, and our bodies are made for this, so the best solution is always to bring all things under the control for Christ, abstinence, you know, abstaining from a good thing is generally not the best way to serve. And it's a, it's a principle that applies to other things. Sometimes God calls us, as we've said, talked about last week, to a life of singleness, which means a life of abstinence. And that's okay. But, but it's never, in other words, God's good gifts there's always, in my mind anyway, there's always something a little wrong when we abstain from good things. Now look, we all we all have different battles, different temptations, different makeups. There are things perhaps that some should abstain from that you need to be very careful about. 
you can fall into addiction. And I understand that. And, and that those are things you have to take into consideration. You know, whether, as we saw in chapter 6, is this something I control or is it controlling me? But abstaining from something is saying, look, I can't master this for the sake of Christ, so therefore I'm just not going to do it. And that can be problematic because our what should be our strength and driving motivation is that I will do all things for the glory of God. And so if I've got to abstain from it, from good things we're talking about, then it's saying that I just cannot, my love for the Lord does not quite, is not quite strong enough for me to be able to control this. Now again, they're, 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 that's a broad uh, subject, but, I'm, but I, I just, I think that that's, there's a way of looking at things that um, sometimes abstinence is the easy way out. And, and again, uh, we're talking here about marriage. Paul, you know, just just because sex can lead to all kind of problems and has created all sorts of problems does not mean, and Paul makes it clear here, abstinence is not necessarily the, the right way. No, this is a good gift of God. And, and abstinence, we don't have children, right? So, Absence, you don't have a, a marriage relationship, which is a great gift of God. So you see, abstinence isn't always the answer to everything. And, and I'll leave it at that. And again, some of these things you have to think through and, and we can always talk about. But to me, anyway, those are things that uh, need to be thought about anyway. We also saw that singleness might sometimes have advantage, but is never to be preferred over marriage as if it is a more holy state. It is an option if the Lord has gifted you to remain pure. The Bible never takes a higher view of singleness nor a lower view of marriage and intimacy. And of course, we we can see, for instance, how Catholicism has twisted all that to make uh, being married to the Lord and not to abstain from marriage on earth is a more holy state and necessary to be uh, holy, uh, you know, sanctified, and all that kind of stuff. And and it's a lot of nonsense. We also saw that a married person's body is not just their own, but it is for Christ, and it is for your spouse. This applies equally for the husband and for the wife. So those are a few topics that we dealt with last week. Clearly, as important as this text is in chapter 7, it can be and has been confusing for many. And you know, and I understand that. It's, there's, I wish that the, I wish that things were plainer, and I wish there wasn't a lot of controversy. But that's not the way the Lord has has brought these things out. And again, there's reasons for that. It doesn't mean that there's not a lot of good, important things here, but it is something that is difficult. But we don't run from that. We we have to deal with that. And so we cannot deny that the biblical statements on marriage and divorce are not as clear and concrete as we might like. Uh, that's just the way it is. If they are, if they were, no doubt we would not spend as much time studying as we do. And that's always, as I said before, I think very clearly the Lord sometimes teaches us things in a way that we have to dig for. It's not, even Jesus when he spoke, often spoke in parables, right? And there were reasons for that. But one thing that does is make you think about it. He doesn't just spoon feed everything so that we don't have to think about things. 
And chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is something you got to think through. And I have had to think through this for years, uh, having dealt with things like that, even uh, again as in New York, and I've told some of you about that, and then what happened to my daughter. It forces you to think carefully about these matters, and that's a good thing. It is of no avail to be holier or more conservative on an issue than the Lord and Paul were. And one of my pet peeves when it comes to the subject of divorce and remarriage is that there are those who, just like the Corinthians said, Paul, it's better that we just not avoid uh, sexual intercourse in, in every form of it. You, 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 you say, that's the easy way out. You know, yeah, if I don't have a relationship with a woman, I will never perhaps fall into uh, sexual sin, but I will never have a relationship, a married relationship, which is a God-given gift, right? I'll miss that great intimacy. So, some have said, well, you know, divorce is ugly and there's all these problems. So we'll just say it is wrong in every situation and remarriage is wrong in every situation. That's a safe way out. Well, the problem is the Bible is very clear, clearly does not take that stance. So we, we gotta be very careful that we don't for, because I don't want to get involved in this. I don't want to have to cancel people and all this kind of stuff. I just, Avoid it altogether. It's wrong. Don't do it. If you do it, we're casting you out, and that's the end of it. And and I know a lot of people, a lot of pastors, who basically take that position, and I think it's done a lot of harm. And uh, you know, because you think that you're you avoid all these problems, but marriages don't always feel like they wanted to go. They you've got to be able to deal with sin. So. These are things to remember. When we obey the Lord as we should, certainly most of these matters are taken care of. When we love one another as we should, we won't have divorces. We'll have overall good, solid marriages. And I hope that we in our church do. But to close our eyes to what goes on around us isn't helpful either. We are all sinners and we have to be able to deal with unpleasant matters. And certainly divorce is one of the worst. So another key to this text, though, is to realize that Paul is addressing certain groups in turn. And that helps us here. We'll see. Last week we, we saw that Paul was addressing uh, you know, a certain issue that they were asking about. Today, starting in verse 8, Paul is going to address those who were married but are no longer married for whatever reason and widows. And it's important to understand that Paul is not addressing those who are virgins or those who uh, have never been married. He will get to them later on, and that, that will help us a little bit here. We'll get into that in just a moment. So he's not just throwing out truisms, commands or statements that we can just take at face value. We've got to read them in its context. And when we don't do that, we again fall into various uh, errors. And so in the first seven verses, Paul dealt with the overall view of marriage and singleness, and specifically whether sex is to be seen as a good thing or an evil thing, biblically. And so here he will continue to deal with specific situations. 
in verse 6, the Lord didn't address this, what, what he says here, and I want to just clarify something here. There are three statements that Paul makes that have confused people, and I get asked about, uh, uh, you know, now and then. He says, now as a confession, not a command, I say this. And people say, well, what does that mean? Is that not inspired? Is uh, You know, what, what's going on here? And so, verse 6 and verse 10 and verse 12 all have these statements that are very, I think, very can be explained, but we just, I want to express what they mean so that we can move forward. So in verse 6, what he's saying here is that the Lord didn't address this. Uh, this is something, this is good advice that Paul is giving. It's inspired, obviously, but it's not a command. This is, in certain situations, this is a good idea. It's a concession. And he said, and I wish that all were as myself. We dealt with this last week. Paul was probably lost his wife in one way, but he's unmarried. And he wished, he said, if you find yourself unmarried, uh, and this is the subject of today as well, then perhaps it's better not to get married, and, you know, for certain reasons. So that's what that means. In verse 10, he says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And so in that case, as we'll see, Paul is saying that this is not something I have been saying that's new. The Lord has already addressed this. So he's quoting the Lord. And then in verse 12, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. And again, people say, well, Paul's kind of going off in his own. And, and what does that mean? Is that inspired? And no, Paul, Paul was a, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was writing a book that obviously was under inspiration. What all he's saying is that now this is what I'm saying as an, with apostolic authority. It is to be taken as the word of God. It is something new that the Lord did not address before. So I'm telling you now. So it's just, it's just as if the Lord says because all the Bible comes from God. So just kind of keep those things in mind and don't get too, you know, tripped up by those statements. And so in verse 10, Paul reminds us of what the Lord has already taught about marriage and divorce in Matthew 19. We'll look at that in just a moment. Um, he doesn't state everything that the Lord states, but he's given us a, a basic rule that Jesus has given. That Christian couples should not divorce. And then in verse 12, Paul is giving further instruction under inspiration that the Lord did not previously teach. And so back to verse 8, our question today is, what does Paul, who is he referring to when he says to the unmarried and the widows? Now, many assume that he is speaking of everyone who is single. And I think that that confuses, you can understand why you would think that, but I don't think that's what the Lord is doing that. We notice that the Lord is doing. We notice down in verse 25 where he begins a new section. He says, now concerning the betrothed. I, I'm not exactly sure. I know, I think a little bit why the ESV translates it that. We'll get into that when we get down there. But most all the other translations have virgin. In other words, these are ones who have never been married. Not those who have lost a spouse in death who are divorced or widowed. But these are virgins there. And that's a different word down in verse 25. And I think in verse 34 we kind of see this come into play where he says, 
and talking about a married man, his interests are divided, and the married or virgins, the, the married or virgin woman, is anxious about the things of the Lord. So you see, they're using those same terms. The the unmarried or virgins are, are a different category, but you notice he doesn't say the unmarried generally because that would include everybody, but he, he separates those terms. The unmarried are those who have lost a spouse who are divorced and single up at that time. The virgin and the troth are the ones who uh, have never been married. And so that, I think that helps us understand what's going on in verse 8. He's talking about to those who find themselves, for whatever reason, having no longer married, or and which would apply, uh, also be a widow as well. And he seems to include himself here, which is, again, why some believe that he used to be married, um, who are these who are not virgins. And he says that under the present situation, it might be better to stay unmarried. You know, just, just because you were married doesn't mean you have to necessarily be married again. So he's speaking, as we'll see when we get down to verses 26 and 32, in the context of the present persecution and difficulty, it might, don't just assume marriage. Especially because of the present stress. Because a man who uh, is worried about persecution, about dying, is going to be much more, uh, have much more difficulty uh, in what he says in his profession, knowing that if he is you know, taken to jail or, or martyred, uh, he's leaving a family behind. So it, it, it causes undue stress, you know, and, and things like that. We'll talk more about that later on. And so in verse 8 here, it isn't for everyone. And so if it, uh, singleness isn't for everybody, but if it can be done biblically, then that is fine. And so in verse 9, this would be taken then that remarriage is okay under certain conditions other than death. In other words, just think about it. To the unmarried widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. And he'll, again, explain this further later on. But, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So, clearly then, if you... Are unmarried. You were married, but you're not for whatever reason. There are certain times, certain conditions where it's okay to remarry, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on as well. But verse nine makes that very clear. He says, if you're battling desires, you know you were married, you had a great relationship, and now all of a sudden that's gone. Uh, you know, you can understand someone who, who looks for that again. You know, they. They had a good relationship and they want to continue to have that marriage. You know, and, and so forced repression in the Bible is never seen as a good thing. Some can do quite well. Some some people they might lose their spouse and and you know they're just happy they're okay not to ever get married again, and that's fine. Some you know, no, I you know they they they've had a good situation and they want to continue. And so it's perfectly acceptable form of service to be celibate for the sake of the kingdom, but it, it takes one who is gifted. And so, in verse 10, to the married, you know, so, so he deals with those, uh, you know, in a 
very general way who are unmarried or widows. But what about those who are married? To them, I give this charge. Really what he's saying here is remember the words of the Lord here. From the beginning. Remember Jesus said from the beginning. Jesus says that um, you know one man should have one woman and they are married until death. And Jesus says that uh, you are to remain married and don't divorce for any reason except for uh, unfaithfulness, adultery, fornication. He does give an exception, but Paul does not mention the exception. And one reason might be because, well, well, everybody knows what the exception was. All these people would know that, so he doesn't get into that. Perhaps Paul doesn't talk about the exception because he's focusing on the importance of staying married. And let's not worry about the exception right now. I think he will address this later on, but he doesn't bring that out now. But Paul says, look, the general statement, the Lord made this very clear, that as a rule, there's no reason for getting for, uh, people to be divorced. And I think we have to understand that in this case, Paul is speaking specifically to Christian couples. Because in a moment, he's going to deal with what about someone who is married to an unbeliever? That's a different problem. But he says, listen, a, a, a Christian couple, how are you to look at divorce as, as off limits? There's no reason for it. And he says, if you do divorce for whatever reason, um, then remain unmarried and work on being reconciled. But again, this is a Christian couple. These are people who should know better. And for whatever reason... There's been divorce, and, and there's, there's never a divorce without somebody sinning. That this divorce is always a result of sin in some way, not necessarily both, but one or the other. And he says, in that case, though, Christian couples, if they get divorced, they should say, okay, look, this is not a good situation, and let's figure out the reason here. Let's get counseling. Let's get back together at some point. And, and Paul makes that very clear there in verses 10. So in verse 10, he's addressing those who are currently married. And uh, the question was, can we divorce for any reason? And notice, he, he, he refers to what the Lord said in verse back in Matthew 19. And uh, Jesus Remember that they came to Jesus and said, Lord, can we divorce for any reason? So this is, again, Jesus' answer has got to be taken in the context that Jesus is not saying everything there is to say about divorce and remarriage. He's He's answering specifically their question and giving some general principles. And I think that's one reason why Paul doesn't quote it all. So they come to him and say, Lord, is, is, can I, because back then, a man could, could divorce his wife for, uh, burning supper. For any, any reason. He just got tired of her. He divorced her. And they were saying, Lord, is that okay? Because that was a huge controversy back then. And Jesus says, no, that is not how it is to be. Uh, you are not allowed to divorce your wife except for uh, sexual immorality and Therefore, if you do that, you marry another, you're committing adultery. So he doesn't say that divorce is always off limits, but he says easy divorce, there's a very narrow reason for divorce, but 
what you guys are doing are not it's not right. It's a sin. And so understand what Jesus is saying. And if so therefore then, if, because that's what the Lord said about divorce, married couple Christian married couples have no reason to be divorced. It doesn't mean they're not gonna they can't have problems and, and some, some real problems, but they're if you're a true believer and you love the Lord, there is never any excuse for you not to be able to settle your problems and to be able to work through them. And, it, and, and couples who can't work through them, one or both of them, I think it calls into question your profession if two married people cannot find reconciliation and get right. And so just to sum up to this point, those who become Christians and find themselves unmarried don't have to seek to be married again. Singleness is a valid option. But it is better to marry than to be frustrated or, or lonely. A Christian couple, though, can never divorce for unbiblical reasons. And if they do, they should remain single until they can be reconciled. And then, well, so let me continue to make just a few observations. There are some things that we can conclude then from this passage so far. First of all, a lifelong permanence of marriage is always the way things should be. So again, we live in a fallen world. Things happen, but this is what our goal should be. And for two Christian couples, that shouldn't be an issue. And we're going to deal here in a moment with when you're married to an unbeliever. Um, if, if marriage doesn't last until death, it's because somebody is doing wrong. Secondly, if we find down in verses 39 through 40, we are free to remarry at death, of, at the death of a spouse, but only as in the Lord. Uh, we'll, I mean, I'm kind of looking ahead here, but Paul talks about, you know, marrying if you find yourself in a single state. The later say that widows, and, and, and I'm thinking in some cases this, this really applies in, in some ways to older people. Obviously, you can be widowed younger. But he says, listen, if you've lost your spouse to death, feel free to get married again. In fact, he tells Timothy in his epistle that a younger widow should seek to get married again, but only in the Lord. And the point I want to make here is that sometimes we see people who lose their spouse and they're so desperate to get married again you know, because they, they, they don't do well without a spouse, without marriage, that they'll marry anybody. They'll lower their standards. And Paul says, look, we are to have control over ourselves. And no matter how lonely you are or how frustrated you are, you can't just marry anybody. The rules still apply. You might be 70 years old, but you only marry somebody who is saved, a believer. You are a believer. And so he makes that very plain too. Thirdly, just because you are lonely and needy um, doesn't mean you can settle. Well, I've actually I've got ahead of myself though. And, and the idea here is that marriage is serious. It cannot be reduced to something I do just to take care of physical needs or companionship. It meets those needs, but it is to be a reflection of our relationship to the Lord. Is to be a spiritual activity because everything we do is to be an act of worship and service. So marriage is never reduced to just something to meet my needs. And, and those are, I think, some good principles to keep in mind. 
Well, again, as I said, Paul doesn't deal with the exception clause that Jesus uh, dealt with and mentions in Matthew 19. Um, he's dealing primarily with the idea of easy divorce. In fact, over in Matthew 5:31, Jesus, we also read Jesus talking about this, where he says, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. It, it was also said, that is, they're quoting from the Mosaic Law. But Jesus says, But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So again, Jesus is saying, Look, Moses let you divorce for any number of reasons, but that was not how it was supposed to be. There are parameters to that. And so Jesus, again, points that out there in Matthew chapter 5. And so one principle that I would get from all this as we go through this chapter is that while marriage is to be permanent, it's to be until death, divorce as a rule is not to be an option, especially for Christians, when there is unfaithfulness, there's a sense in which all bets are off. Doesn't mean a marriage has to end in divorce, but that causes so many different kind of dynamics in a relationship that Jesus understands and gives permission to say, look, if that's the end of the marriage, if they, they've broken covenant with you, that that's the, that's a time where there can be divorce. And I, and I think that when you go through chapter 7, as well as what the Lord says, you really can't get around those things. <clears throat> and so, um, in verse uh, 15, for instance, Paul says, um, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. So, here we see Paul taking that basic position that divorce among Christians is something to be avoided, but when a unbeliever presses for divorce and will not remain married, now that's okay. That's another that's, a, that's another time in which divorce is something that uh, might happen, and that's okay. We'll get to that here in just a moment. And the reason I, I bring that out is because sometimes it seems we can get so narrow in the in these things, as I kind of said at the beginning, that we're so we want to protect marriage so much that we're willing to again simplify everything and say all divorce is wrong, and all remarriage is wrong, and we will consign people who find themselves divorced some for a lot of times for, for no fault of their own. To a life of loneliness. Now, I've seen this done. Some a woman finds herself divorced. Perhaps her husband cheated, and she's she's divorced him, or he divorced her. And they say, "Okay, but you can't ever get remarried. You've got to stay by yourself for the rest of your life." And we begin to take a position that even the Bible doesn't take. And yet, we're going to see here where Paul says that in those cases, you are no longer in bondage; you are free to. Uh, remarry, and so I think we need to be careful that we don't go beyond what the Bible says. Because notice here that he says um, in verse 15, in such cases, brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In other words, we, we don't, we're not going to take a position. I don't think the Lord has a position where, look, marriage is all that matters, and 
It doesn't matter if you're killing each other, if you're being abused. Uh, we're, you know, don't ever get divorced. Don't ever leave. And if and, and so, if if your lost husband divorces you because he doesn't want to married to a Christian, well, you've got to remain alone. You can't ever get married again. No, God's called us to peace. He wants us to enjoy life. And when 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 it's forced upon you, it's okay under certain conditions to get married again. You don't have to be alone. I think a lot of damage has been done because people have said, look, I don't care if you're 23 years old, you're divorced, so you can never be a member of the church, you're always going to have that stigma on you, you can't ever get remarried, and they just do harm instead of good. And so, yes, the, 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 uh, divorce might have the lifelong ramifications, but we've been called to peace to minister to people, not to save marriage at all costs. And, and again, those are things that, that you have to think through, but I think they make sense. So, as we've seen, Christian couples who divorce have clear parameters that they must follow. But in something that the Bible is clearly not precise in, we've got to be careful that we don't destroy lives just for the sake of trying to emphasize the importance of marriage and, and no one believes it's more important than I do and no one would try to save a marriage more than me but there are other things more important than marriage as, as Paul's already said marriage ends at death anyway so we've got to be careful here and that brings us finally then to verses 12 through 14 and here he deals with the uh, what happens if a Christian you know, say you get saved and all of a sudden you realize now I'm married to someone who's lost. Well, I, I need to separate from them. And, I, I, you know, should I, I shouldn't be with them because, you know, they're lost. They're, un, they're defiled and, and I'm a Christian. And, and so should I divorce? And Paul says, nope. Nope. Let's think through those things. And so he says to the rest who are married to unbelievers, uh, he says, this is what I'm going to tell you. He said, Jesus didn't address this. And the reason is, is because in the Jewish economy, there was no such thing as mixed marriages unless you married a pagan. And then that was wrong under any circumstance. But he was he didn't address that because a Jew, whether you were a believer or not, if you were in the covenant, then it was okay to marry. So there was no such thing as, as mixed marriage among Jews saved or unsaved, if you were part of the covenant, that it was okay. So, why then is he making Paul making this point that Jesus didn't? Well, because, for one reason, Paul, some were going around claiming to be an apostle and having gifts and proclaiming new things that Jesus never said, and they were claiming apostolic authority and doing a lot of harm. The Koran and some of the spurious Gnostic Gospels did that. They they, they added information that Jesus never said that, and uh, caused a lot of, a lot of uh, problems. But Paul says, I am a, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Therefore, when I say this, it has full apostolic authority. So, he, so there's one reason why he says it like he says it there. Uh, that um, Jesus didn't command this, but I am. And that's perfectly okay. Some no doubt would think that... Uh, Someone with with an unsaved spouse shouldn't be in church. You know, your marriage is unholy. 
Um, you could, I can't have fellowship, you know, because and how can you stay with them? Because they're in darkness. How can you have fellowship if you're a person of light? And so it would seem to be that leaving them might be the best thing. And that's why Paul's addressing this. And so in the next few verses, we see that marriage is marriage no matter who's involved. In other words, Paul's answer to this is, no, it doesn't work that way. Uh, a, a God ordained marriage before the fall, and, if, and a marriage is right, but no matter who's involved. It's to be seen as good in God's sight, even when one is unsaved, and even if there are children in that union. And, and some maybe thought that their children were unclean, and Paul addresses this, and, and we might say, why is Paul talking about this, about children being unclean and all this kind of stuff? Well, in Ezra, remember, they were getting ready, they had rebuilt the temple, and now they wanted to start offering sacrifices, but there was a big problem. All the priests were unclean because they had married pagan wives, so therefore they were, un, under the law, unable to serve in the temple. So what does Ezra say? Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who trembled at the commands of our God and let it be done according to the law. You see, in that case, the, the, the priests were to divorce their pagan wives and let their children go off with them because the whole thing was in disobedient to the Lord and defile them as priests. So you can understand that, well, it, you know, Ezra said that, what about us? If Paul says, no, that's a different situation entirely. Marriage is good for all, and if only one is saved in the family, even then there, he's a great blessing to the family. It's not, we don't live under the old economy, it doesn't work that way anymore. And more importantly, he is saying that such a marriage is legitimate and God-honoring along with any children. So perhaps they had this particular passage in mind, and Paul says, no, that was uh, because of the priests and, and the law of Moses, which were no longer under anyway. So he says, don't divorce because you think that your spouse is unholy or that your children are a result of some unholy union just because they're lost. I think that backs up First Peter Remember where he says that a believing wife should not try to uh, escape marriage of an unbeliever because she might be able to win him to the Lord someday. She has a sanctifying role uh, where she could perhaps be light to a person of darkness. And so if both parents are lost, then the children indeed would be in a place of uncleanness and spiritual danger, darkness. But by having at least one Christian parent, parent they're in a much better place. They have someone to tell them the gossip, tell them about Jesus Christ. And so again, we see that Paul's position is what is good for people, not not just this false sense of, well, I don't care who gets hurt. Um, I've got to separate myself from every uh, unchristian. I'm a Christian now, and so I've got to separate myself from every unbeliever. And Paul says, no, 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 let's just stop and think about this. He says, think of who you'll hurt if you left your husband, uh, your unsaved husband. If you left your children because uh, they were a product of, of, of being with an unsaved man. No, he says they're a big responsibility. They're an opportunity for you to serve the Lord. When one gets saved, they don't just get to abandon their unsaved family, but they have obligations. And Paul's going to actually, next week we're going to deal specifically with the principles of why he could say this 
in this passage, and we'll save that for verse 17 and following. Alright, so let me just close by addressing what we all know, you know, Presbyterians, the covenant theologian takes this passage to try to prove that the child of an unsaved couple, or even if one of them is saved, means their children are saved. And I, and I know men who say this, who said this, you know, more, more times than not. You know, they believe and take my word for it. Well, first of all, I would say this, that if, it says very, very clearly here that the, uh, believing wife makes her husband holy or sanctified. If that means that, if, if then it says the same thing about your children, it makes your children sanctified. If that means that that means that they're saved, then it also means that the the unsaved spouse is saved as well. That once once you get saved, that automatically saves your spouse. And if you're going to use the same terminology, it applies to both. And clearly, that's not right. So to say that the, that if you're saved, your children are automatically saved, just textually is refuted. It makes no sense. But I think there's other a better way to, to say it. In other words, that's what it, I don't believe that means that. But the question is, well, what does it mean? <clears throat> Clearly, what Paul is addressing here um, is that, it, first of all, you should not divorce just because you have a uh, unsaved marriage. But there's some principles here. And one of the things that the Presbyterians will use is in Acts 2.39 where it says, For the promises for you and to your children. And that's usually all the quote. And they'll say that, see, this shows that the promise of Christ and Messiah was given to us and to our children, so they're included in, in the gospel. Well, the problem with that is that it also refers to the Gentiles, those who are far off, and as many as our Lord, the Lord our God shall call. So, yes, the promises were to the Jews and to the children of the Jews, to those under the covenant, but the promises always had to view the Gentiles as well. So this isn't that something that has to do just with Christian children. First of all, it's speaking to the Jews. And everybody who gets part of the promise have to call upon the Lord. they got to be called by God. So a child isn't automatically saved until God calls him any more than an adult. So the, the, the whole use of that verse just really falls apart when you just read the whole thing. There's a related verse here in 1 Timothy that I think helps us understand what is being said. It says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. That same word is made holy, the same phrase, right? And there the idea is that everything God has made is good, and if we can use it with thankfulness and for the glory of God, then it is sanctified for the Lord's use. We don't understand that to mean that, for instance, uh, an apple, if if it is received with Thanksgiving, gets saved, right? But that's how they're using. They're saying that child gets saved is made holy. No, it's being that it's it's being sanctified. It's it's, it's a good thing. 
So the idea is that even if you're married to an unsaved person, it is a proper union. It is real marriage. No one is defiled. In fact, the unsaved um, spouse, the children, are in a better situation because there's at least somebody in the household with light. So children are not illegitimate or unholy because they are. you have them with an unsaved person. But they, the marriage is proper, so therefore they are proper. They are sanctified. They are, they are not illegitimate. And I think that is, to me, so obvious what Paul is saying. <clears throat> the unbelieving husband and wife participates in what might be called the fringe benefits of salvation of the believing mate. If the unbelieving partner were not sanctified by the marital union with Christian, with the Christian, there would be serious consequences for the children resulting from that union. So in Paul's words, he says, otherwise your children would be unclean. His, his reasoning is that if marriage to an unbeliever in some way defiles the believing mate, then obviously it defiles the children of that union. But since the unbeliever is blessed by the believer, then so the children are blessed by the believer. But again, if the children are saved, then the unbeliever is saved, and of course that cannot be. So remaining married to an unbeliever does not have a negative connotation, which I think is why Paul is addressing this to start with. Not for the partner or the children. There are, in fact, distinct advantages for the unbelievers. There is therefore no good reason for the believer to seek to dissolve the marriage just because that person is unsaved. All of this, however, is contingent on the desire of the unbeliever to remain married. The exception will be, what if the unbeliever won't stay married to you? Now, that's a whole different situation, and Paul will address that down in verses 15 and 16, which we'll get to next week. So, to sum up, if you were married, but are no longer, for whatever reason, that it might be better to stay unmarried, depending on the gifts and the situations, but you don't have to. Two Christians who are married should remain together, but if they don't, they are not free to remarry unless it's to each other. This assumes, of course, uh, that the that what that one of the partners doesn't go off into immorality or remarry, because if that if the supposedly believing partner remarries, then I, then I think you are free to remarry because that would dissolve the marriage entirely. In verse 11, Paul is not... Okay, I just wanted to say one thing about uh, chapter verse 11. We'll go right back there real quickly in chapter 7. He says in verse 10, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Then it says in parentheses, But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. That does not mean, by the way, that Paul is refuting what he just says that it's okay to divorce as long as you remain unmarried, but if you do uh, divorce your husband, well, okay. He's not He's not saying that, you know, well, if you do, it's okay. He's just saying that if you find yourself divorced, then here are the parameters that you must follow. So don't, don't get tripped up by that. Christians married to lost spouses are not free to leave them and can never be the ones that instigate divorce simply because the other person is lost, as long as they are faithful and as long as they want to stay with you. But what if the spouse forces it? Then that's a whole different situation. 
Lord willing, we'll get into that next week. I know sometimes that can some of this can be hard to follow, but it it, it requires a lot of thought, a lot of study, and, and they're impo- it's important enough to figure it out. But if you haven't, if you really maybe struggle with some of this stuff, at least I hope it should be obvious enough why we don't take the position that children of married couple or of one married spouse are saved. That that text just does not teach that on any level. It can be very, I think, very obviously explained in a way that makes sense with the rest of the Bible. And I hope that at least we don't fall under the, I think, damaging error that some have there. Any questions or comments? No, we passed that before the service. I still missed it a little bit. Oh, well, part of it, I guess. All right, well, have a good week. Got any questions? Uh, feel free to uh, contact me. You know, I know that not everybody sees all of this the same, and I'm, you know, I understand that. Believe me, I've had to deal with that over and over again. But we want to try to be as faithful to the spirit of the word as we can. So, um, thank you. Have a good week. Thank you.